0: You ever jump to a wrong conclusion? Am the only one that's ever done that? You ever you ever jump to the wrong conclusion and then say or do something that kind of made you feel dumb later? Uh, here's a story about some of my friends who did this once. When we were finishing up our time in Kansas City, ready to move out here, uh, I taught at a big high school on the Missouri side, Lee's Summit West, and. To understand how this story could happen, you have to understand this is a big place. Like there are as many there are as many people every day. At least some at West High School as there are in Imperial every day. Um, it there were we had over twenty teachers just in my little the English department. You know that's as many nine through twelve teachers are in our whole school district here. It's just a very big place with you know a thousand plus people there every or a couple thousand people there every day and. Um, anyway, I had a good relationship there and, and, in the English department one saying that we like to say, I used to say this all the time, uh, is there are no hairpin turns on a cruise ship. And the reason we would say that, like on a cruise ship, you have to plan the turns well ahead of time and turn those babies gently because if you, if you try to stomp on it and turn on a dime that's when stuff gets knocked over and maybe somebody will get knocked overboard and everybody gets really upset. And the reason we would say that is in an organization as big as that school was, anytime we got in a situation where we had to change course in that school very quickly, people panicked, it just never went well. And so we would say, there's no hairpin turns on a cruise ship. I remember one time, We got the announcement, Uh, we were supposed to have parent-teacher conferences on on Thursday this week, but we're going to do it on Tuesday in the evening, and man, it was just, it it was chaos. There are no hairpin turns on a cruise ship. That was our saying. Well, when my last day came, my colleagues in the English department decided to have a little fun with me, and so they... They figured out what I drove, because there's so many, there's a thousand, two thousand cars out there, and they found out where I parked. They found out I drove a blue minivan and where I parked, and so they painted my minivan up to look like a boat, like with nautical themes all over it. Um, whoa, what happened there? Get down there. And so there's just one side. You know, I don't know if you can, this says the, the USS Maxwell, and there were other themes on the other sides of the, uh, of the van, har, 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 there's only one problem, that's not my van. <laughs> and I was carrying stuff out to my vehicle, and I didn't know any different, and I saw another teacher, I didn't know her very well, she was a fax teacher, most of us would know that as home ec. And she had this look on her face that was some mixture of confusion and anger. And I just said, are you okay? And she said, those darn kids. Said, I drove my mother-in-law's van to school one day. And they painted it up to look like a boat. Uh, So that was one of my favorite pranks ever. Well, in today's passage, it's the disciples' Who are going to jump to the wrong conclusion? They're not going to paint up the wrong minivan, but they're going to jump to a wrong conclusion, and in a way that I think they're probably going to wind up feeling kind of dumb. It's going to take us a while to get there though. Uh, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice there's a lot of, a lot of territory between Matthew 1529 and 1612. This is two or three times bigger than a passage that we normally tackle. Uh, which means we should be out of here about one thirty or 2 o'clock. I've instructed the deacons to chain the doors. Uh, no, the reason we're covering so much, and we're going to just go through the first two-thirds of this pretty quickly, I mean, all of it, to cover that much ground. The reason I think we can go through this quickly is because as we read this, you're going to feel like, the reason I called this deja vu, you're going to feel like, haven't we heard this before? The first two thirds of this passage are extremely repetitive. They, they sound almost exactly like something else we've already read. And so, what happens in this passage is our, the disciples get a review session, and then they sort of forget the review session. And they jump to the wrong conclusion, and Jesus is going to give them a warning. And so we've got to, the reason I want to take this all together is because if we don't understand what came before it, this review session, you don't really understand how they missed the point. So, we've got a lot to do. Roll your sleeves up. Find your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29. We're just going to go one chunk at a time. We won't read it all at once today just because there's so much. Our first... uh, deja vu session, is there's another miracle feeding. Jesus feeds a crowd, and I think as we read this, if you've been here, if you were here a chapter ago, you're like, loaves and fishes and miracle feeding. I think we've heard this before. Matthew 15, 29 through 39, the last 11 verses of Matthew 15 go like this. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and Jesus healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Verse 33. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit or recline on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people and they all ate and were satisfied and they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat, and they came to the region of, of, of Magadan. Okay. Does that sound at all familiar? If you've been here as we've gone through, it should. Some people, mainly people who don't like the idea of the inerrancy of scripture this is one of the stories that they like to point to as proof that what we read in the new testament these miracle stories especially are just legends they didn't really happen and the idea goes like this like all legends legends have different versions and obviously what happened here is matthew who heard two versions of the same legend and You know, in a mistake, he put two versions of the same legend in his book and tried to pass these off. That's kind of the idea. That doesn't convince me very much at all. In fact, the fact that both of these show up make me more confident that this is an eyewitness account. And here's here's why. These are so similar. And Matthew's not a fool. And Matthew knows how to tell a story. Matthew's educated, he was a tax collector, he was a record keeper. He had to know he was putting two almost identical stories within a chapter of each other. This isn't an oversight. Either he's a fool or he was there and he saw both of these events and we're supposed to learn something from whatever difference might happen to be there. These are extremely similar. Quickly, here are the similarities in this story I just read. And if you turn back one chapter into chapter 14, there's one that was a feeding of the 5,000. The numbers of loaves is a little bit different, but here's the similarities. Both take place beside the Sea of Galilee. In both cases, there's a huge crowd that Jesus had compassion on and because of his compassion, he healed people of diseases and being crippled and blindness and all that stuff. There was not enough food. And no place to get food. The disciples in both cases found a few loaves of bread and some fish. Uh, In both cases, Jesus prepared the crowd as if he were going to serve a banquet. He asks the blessing. He asks them to not sit down. in In the Greek, he asks them to recline, which is the position, prepare for a meal and then the disciples walk around and feed thousands and thousands of people out of baskets that miraculously never run out of food, and then they pick up leftovers in baskets that account to more food, uh, amount to to more food than they had started with. Those very 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 similar, but they're not identical. There's really only one difference besides, you know, kind of the minor detail of the number of of loaves they found the difference we notice in these, these few items. First, though both of these stories happen beside the Sea of Galilee, they're actually on opposite sides. That gives us a real hint. Second, we don't see this easily in, in English, but the baskets that the disciples use are different. And this wouldn't mean anything to us, But in the first story back in chapter 14, the baskets are spuritas, which each basket is called a spuritas. And that is a very distinctively Jewish kind of basket. In the way a yarmulke is a very Jewish kind of hat, right? If you read that a crowd was wearing yarmulkes, you would know this was a Jewish crowd, right? If the crowd has spuritas, that kind of basket, you would know it's a Jewish Crowd, the baskets here in chapter fifteen um, are, excuse me, spiritus are the are the big ones today. Uh, the uh, the is the is the Jewish ones, but regardless, the baskets today are big. We would call them hampers, maybe. Uh, if you know the story of Paul being lowered over the wall of Damascus in a basket, that's the kind of basket that was there. Much more widespread, not specific to anyone. Any one culture. And then in verse 31, I should have looked that up, but the crowds, when Jesus heals them, they praise the God of Israel. And all of these things let us know this is a crowd of Gentiles that Jesus feeds and heals. Last time, it was Jews. In the New Testament, Jews don't call their God the God of Israel. They just call him God. In the same way, we don't always call our president the president of America or the president of the United States. But people who live in other countries have to call him that to differentiate between the president of the United States and the president of some other place, right? So this is a Gentile crowd. It's the only difference. And here's why why the disciples get that review. What just happened before this? Jesus just met with a Gentile woman and he was intentionally rude to this woman. And he was rude for a reason to train his disciples and one rude thing he said to her basically is, it's not time for me to do something for someone like you because I was sent to the house, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now if you want to I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon. You can look up why Jesus would say that and what he was doing with this woman. But here's what Jesus doesn't want. He doesn't want his disciples to get the wrong idea. Jesus was sent to Israel, but he was not just sent for Israel. He was sent for everyone. And so immediately after Telling this woman, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus goes out into the countryside beside the lake. He finds a crowd of Gentiles and he ministers to them. He feeds them. He heals them exactly like he did to Israel. Does that make sense? As an object lesson for the disciples that uh, I'm for everyone. All right. That's the first review session. If you want to know more about what happens in that miracle feeding and why Jesus did that stuff, uh, you can look up, go through our website, and go back in chapter 14, and you can find the the sermon I did on the feeding of the 5,000, and I explain more about the feeding there. All right, so that's the first review session. The second one, to quote uh, the great Yogi Berra, is Deja Vu all over again. That comes in the first four verses of chapter 16. It's been a little while since we saw this one. Um, But back in chapter 12, beginning in verse 38, there was a a group of religious leaders that came to Jesus and demanded that he perform a sign. They were basically saying to Jesus, we're not going to support your candidacy for Messiah Unless you do some giant magic trick that convinces us. Do you remember that story? We'll see if this sounds familiar. The beginning of chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And then in verse 4, almost repeat, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left and went away. Does that sound familiar? It should if you've been, especially if you were just sitting down and reading this the way it was designed to be read, sort of in one sitting. It would have been 10 or 15 minutes since you read a story very similar to this. If you want more details about it, uh, chapter 12, verse 38, and you can find the sermon on that. Now, there are some differences between these two stories. I want to tell you what's going on here. The first uh, difference is the group that comes to Jesus. What... Back in chapter 12, Jesus was approached by scribes and Pharisees. They often ran together. But today, Jesus is approached by Pharisees and Sadducees. And they didn't agree on anything. They never ran together. They ordinarily hated each other. It's, It's striking to see the Pharisees and Sadducees do anything together. This would be very similar to reading some story in our current political climate in Washington DC the republicans and the democrats doing anything together right like right now they couldn't agree on a fast food order right and the pharisees and sadducées come together like uh, you remember 911 911 suddenly republicans and democrats are united And we have a conservative president who has the highest approval ratings in history. Or you can go back a generation or two before that. And in World War II, we have the most progressive president we'd ever had. And business leaders gave billions of dollars to see the war effort he was leading succeed. Whereas today, I'm not sure we wouldn't rather see the president fail if he's not from our side. Um... Jesus was sort of like the 9-11 that came through first century Palestine in that he got people like the Pharisees and Sadducees to unite when they couldn't agree on anything, and they agreed on the rejection of Jesus. Ordinarily, again, these groups hated each other, and here's what they do. Another difference from chapter 12 They come to Jesus and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. If you read in chapter 12, he's not asked for a sign from heaven, but a sign. Here's why I think that's significant. Religious Israel knows Jesus is putting himself up as the Messiah. There's plenty of evidence for that. And the Old Testament, their scriptures say when Messiah comes, he's going to usher in what we call judgment day what the Bible, the Old Testament more regularly calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the prophet Joel says, when that happened, when the great and terrible day of the Lord shows up, there's going to be some disturbances in the heaven. The sun is going to go dark. The moon's going to turn to blood. The Messiah, the Christ, he's going to turn the lights out and he's going to judge the nations, destroy the nations, and he's going to establish a Jewish kingdom. That's coming. Here's what these guys are saying to Jesus. If you want us to support you, you better turn the lights out and get started. You better start doing some prophet Joel type stuff or we're out. Now, what they miss is this one very important problem. If Jesus establishes the kingdom at this point he's the only one who's going to get in it's going to be a very lonely kingdom because the Old Testament also says only the righteous qualify Jesus didn't come to pour out judgment on the nations of the earth the first time he came to have the judgment the nations of the earth deserve poured out on him so that when so that we can be deemed righteous by faith that he has paid the penalty we deserve. See, they missed that part. The Pharisees and Sadducees, they hate each other, but they both agree with this. Our club is the right club. We're already in the kingdom, so we just want Messiah to start the kingdom. To heck with everybody else. We know we're safe, even though they weren't. So that's what's going on. They want to sign... From heaven. Here's Jesus' response. You ever hear this saying, Red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailors take warning? You've heard that. I know my dad's nodding his head because his mom was full of sayings like this, a catalog of them. Um, Jesus says basically the same thing. He says, You know, when it's evening, you say that that there's going to be fair weather because the sky is red in the morning. You know, it's going to be a rough day because it's the same thing. This is a very old notion. Here's what Jesus is saying. You hypocrites. In every other area of your life, here's what you do. You take a look at the evidence you have and you make the best, you draw the best conclusion from the available evidence. And you do that, you do it with the weather for Pete's sake. But you don't do it with me. Jesus knows these guys do not have an evidence problem. They have a pride problem. They have a rebellion problem. They won't accept Jesus as the Messiah, not because there's not evidence to suggest Jesus is the Messiah, because they don't want to submit to someone who's not a part of their club. They don't want to submit to someone who has a different plan than what they want. They want to be the boss. They want to be the Lord. They want things to go down the way they want them uh, to go down. That's why Jesus calls them a, a wicked and an, an evil and adulterous generation. He says, the only sign you're going to get from me is the sign of Jonah. Again, look up the previous sermon on 1238 and the verses following that if you want to know more about that. Jesus just says, here's the sign. The reason, the way Jonah was thrown overboard, swallowed by a giant sea creature, spent parts of three days inside that thing like he was dead and barfed back up on a beach someplace, alive, I'm going to, here's the sign of Jonah, I'm going to be in the belly of the earth, in the tomb, not sort of dead, all the way dead, for parts of three days, and I'm going to rise again. And that's the sign you'd better believe, Pharisees and Sadducees. And most of them don't, not all, because we see in the book of Acts, some of them come to Christ. And that's what's going on there. They don't have an evidence problem. They have a pride problem. They have a rebellion problem. All right. End of review session for the disciples. We see something new in uh, Matthew 16 5 through 12. Here's what's new and different. We'll read this now. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 7, the disciples began to discuss among themselves, saying, he said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of their discussion, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you don't have bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000 and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then the disciples understood that Jesus... Did not say beware of the leaven of, uh, of bread, but beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, here's what happens in those in those verses. Jesus and his disciples are in the boat once again, and while they're crossing, or by the time they get over, they realize we didn't bring, we didn't pack any food, and they. They realize this corporately, and I don't know how this went down, but my guess is there's some finger pointing. And they're, hey, Peter, did you bring any bread? I didn't bring the bread. Nathaniel's supposed to bring the bread. Who put me in charge of food? I thought it was Andrew's turn, right? Stuff like that. And they're discussing why they, they don't have any food. They forgot to pack the lunch. And Jesus breaks in, and he says, rather cryptically, in my opinion, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What's Jesus mean by that? The disciples didn't know either. So you're in good company. They start to discuss, why did Jesus just tell us to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees? Did he he want us to not buy bread from the Pharisees and Sadducees? That their yeast is bad? No, that's probably not it. And here's here's what they settle on, verse 7. Oh, I get it. They say, Jesus is mad because we forgot to pack food. That's, that's the conclusion they come to. Jesus is mad because we're all going to go hungry, because we're not responsible enough to pack to remember lunch. And the rest of this is Jesus' response. It's not all recorded, though. But through my extensive research, I found something that Matthew forgot to reward. When they say to Jesus, we know why you're mad, boss. You're mad at us because we didn't pack food. Jesus' first response is this. For those of you listening online, Pastor Matt just slapped his head really hard. (laughs) He's, He's just exasperated with these guys. This is the wrong conclusion they jump to. Oh, man, we're so dumb. He can't trust us with anything. We didn't pack lunch and now he's really mad because we didn't pack lunch. And the rest of his response is Jesus saying, do you guys still think physical food is a problem for me? (laughs) You see what they missed from the review session? In two chapters, they've watched Jesus feed, I don't know, 20, 30,000 people? Miraculously? So it's not about them forgetting food, maybe, more on that in a minute. So we can tell it's really obvious what Jesus is not mad at. But it's kind of hard to tell what he is mad at. In the rest of our time, which isn't that much, I want to give you two possible explanations for what Jesus means by beware of the teaching. Or excuse me, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Isn't it even at the end when he says beware of the teaching That's cryptic too. Because guess what? They didn't have the same teachings. They had very opposed teachings. The Pharisees were very conservative. They believed in a literal interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, strict adherence to the law. They just believed they they kept it well enough that they were righteous on their own. They believed in the resurrection of the dead, they were waiting on the Messiah. They believed in angels. And they were very, they were separatists from the rest of the world. On the other hand, the Sadducees, they, they were much more worldly. They were compromisers. They didn't take the Old Testament literally. They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. A lot of, they weren't positive on the whole Messiah bit. They also compromised with the Romans and the various Herods and governors. Most of the, the high priests uh, in this section of, of, of history were Sadducees because that's who the Romans wanted in control of religious Israel. So the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees can't really be grouped together. So, what's Jesus saying? These are not my ideas, but here's the. There are two possible ideas. I won't even tell you which one of these to like hang on to, because I've waffled back and forth. I think it's very possible that some of the disciples needed one, and some of the disciples needed the other, or at different times they would all need both. But here's what uh, scholars I trust uh, say Jesus is talking about. Be careful. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast, for the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Interpretation one, option one, reads this way, that Jesus is teaching his disciples to beware of what I'm going to call tribalism, factions. Uh, In Sunday school, it's funny, this happens all the time, in Sunday school in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, Paul's first warning to the church in Corinth is you guys have got to make sure you're not competing with one another in fighting. Here's maybe the main problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Someplace, if you go far enough back on the timeline of Israel, they all come from the same place, biblical Judaism. Judaism. But somewhere along the line, some division started. And by Jesus' day, you have these two separate tribes, parties that exist for their own self-interest and self-preservation. And this interpretation of the warning goes like this. Jesus hears them start to fight about whose fault it was for not bringing bread. And he steps in and says, this is how the scribes and Pharisees started years and years and years ago. They started, they started arguing about what color the carpet ought to be, what kind of music should be played. They started arguing about little stuff and before long. They're completely separate. The Pharisees and Sadducees, maybe their biggest weakness, they didn't accept Jesus because there wasn't evidence for Jesus. They didn't accept Jesus because he wouldn't be one of them. And if you're not one of us, there can't be an ounce of truth in you. This sort of tribalism becomes something like this. If you're not a member, if you're a member of my sect, my party, my group, I will defend you no matter what because the group is what's most important, more important than, than truth, more important than anything. If you're not a member of my party, my sect, I will, I'll, I'll work to destroy you no matter what. And if you're a member of my party or sect and you criticize someone within us, we will cannibalize you. This, obviously the best example of this right now, is American politics. Folks, I'm going I'm to say what I'm going to say because we're in the third district of, of Nebraska, and this is the most conservative Republican place on earth. Okay? If I were delivering this sermon in Philadelphia or uh, Lawrence, Kansas, I would do this differently. Okay, But I'll say what I think we need to hear. Jesus doesn't watch and listen to what we watch and listen to. He doesn't watch Sean Hannity and listen to Rush and wring his hands hoping people will hear that message and repent. Um, The New Testament does not say that the angels in heaven rejoice when our side wins the midterms. It says, the angels in heaven rejoice when sinners repent. And here's what tribalism does. When someone's on my side, they might be a sinner headed for hell, but they're saved in my book because they're one of the good guys. And it makes an enemy out of somebody on the other side that's not supposed to be my enemy it gives me a victory that's not supposed to be my victory. It gives me a cause that's not supposed to be my main cause. Now, don't hear me incorrectly. I'm not telling you not to be involved in politics. I'm not tell- certainly not telling you to vote. I'm certainly not telling you to join the other side. If I was delivering this in Philadelphia, I would talk about how the other political platform has become what... Paul said God turns us over to in Romans chapter 2. But we've got we got to ask ourselves how in my heart do I define victory? What is my main team? What is my main cause? What do I who is really my enemy? Tribalism makes enemies out of people who shouldn't be my enemies. It makes allies of people who really shouldn't be my allies. And it makes it very hard to tell the difference. And option one of what Jesus was saying, watch out. Don't get your little group, your little faction made up. That's how it starts. And by the way, this doesn't happen just in politics. This can be my group of friends. Right? Um, this can be any uh, tribal mentor. can be my family. My kids don't need rebuked. My kids don't need corrected. They're my kids. They're the good guys. Option two is very different. Option two reads this passage as being a, a warning against sign-seeking. It reads this way. Um. Jesus just got done within two chapters doing miracle feedings, feeding thousands of people using a couple of sack lunches, right? Do you think the disciples liked that experience? That would have been awesome. Well, here's what this interpretation says. that The disciples who were supposed to bring lunch forgot to bring the food so that they could say on the boat, Oh! Whatever will we do? How can we get food? There's not enough food again. Jesus, if only there were somebody around who could make... Oh, Jesus, you know what would be good right now. Let's go. Do that bread thing again. Um, maybe, the interpretation goes, somebody forgot that, wanting so the disciples could get their own little private showing. What did, the, what did the Pharisees and Sadducees just ask Jesus to do? You give us a sign from heaven. And if there were some disciples who forgot the bread, Jesus might be going, you're not really going to ask me to do, before you even ask, you're not really going to ask me what the scribes, and, or what the Pharisees and Sadducees just asked, are you? It is, uh, it's really tempting Because God does amazing, miraculous things. It's really tempting to get to longing for new spiritual experiences and better feelings and the more fantastical things that God occasionally does. Uh, And that desire can turn our faith sort of into a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately sort of faith. Our faith is not built on what we can get God to do next. Our faith is built on what God already did and what he promises to do in our eternity. And in the meantime, there's a lot of unsureness, and we walk by faith. So those are the two possibilities. Again, neither of those are mine, um, but they're both biblical. And so just to sum, sum this up, as Jesus warns us, to beware of the, the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the kind of tribalism that gives you a purpose, a mission, and a victory that's not supposed to be your purpose, your mission, and your victory. And second, beware, beware of building a faith upon what you might expect God to do next instead of one built upon what He's already done in our past. Make sense? Why don't you pray with me and we'll close. Father God, thank you for your word. Um, Where we need challenge, thank you for challenging us. And God, thank you that we can depend upon what you have already done. And we can depend upon what you have promised to do in our future. In the meantime, God, as we'll see in a week or two, you've promised to build your church. The gates of hell will not overcome it. That is to be our team and victory is to be seeing sinners repent and become disciples of Jesus who believe on your cross and desire to obey. And God, help us to, to, to not be uh, so tied into our tribes that we reject those who might be ready to repent. And we ignore those among our tribe who need to repent. And God, help us to not build a superficial faith based on what we can see you do or hear you do or feel you do. But a faith that's based on the sureness of our forgiveness and salvation, guaranteed at your cross and in your empty tomb. We love you, Lord. Uh, Bless us as we close this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.